What if you were able to sit down for lunch with some of the greatest leaders in the world? What would you ask? What would they say? Welcome to the Lynch with a Leader podcast, where you're invited to join us in learning the spiritual principles behind big success. Here's your host, Mike Lynch. Welcome to episode 112 of the Lynch with the Leader podcast, where we sit down with some of America's greatest leaders and find out how they have learned to lead with their faith out in front. If I've never met you before, my name is Michael Lynch, and it is my honor to be in this leadership journey with you as we're all seeking to be the leaders that we were created to be in the space and the place that God has put us. It's been a fun summer already. Loved our time with Rusty. Katie Cole the other week, Daniel Ritchie. Today, you get to meet a good friend of mine. So many people on this podcast I get to meet via Zoom. I've read their books. I've heard their stories. I've heard them speak. But this guy today is a friend, and he's a friend who is incredibly passionate about the next generation, and he's incredibly passionate about being a difference maker. His name is Kit Cummings. Kip founded and leads the Power of Peace Project, where he's going into public schools, making a difference, but he's been behind the walls of some of America's most dangerous prisons with his Power of Peace Project, where he goes in and helps bring peace to those prisons. It's an unbelievable story, a story of ministry, a story of being out of ministry, a story of walking with the Lord, and a story of a season where he wasn't walking with the Lord. Kit leads by making a difference, and you are going to love it. I hope you'll read the show notes because there's some really, really good stuff there for you to follow up on. So I want you to pull up a chair, and I want you to listen in to my conversation with Kit Cummings. Well, Kit, this is a day I have so looked forward to having you as a guest on Lynch with a Leader. Thanks so much for joining me today, buddy. I'm thrilled. I've been looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. We've broken bread many times, but we've never stuck a microphone in the middle of the table to capture the conversation. So I'm glad other people get to listen in today. And I'm glad that we didn't have a, a, a one of those. And some of my thought, we don't need people listening to some of the stuff we don't. <laughs> True that. <laughs> True that. You know, it's it's funny, Kit. You know, you're five books in. You've man, you're traveling across the country. God's using you in great ways, but that's not really always where you've been. You've been on a little roller coaster ride, even in your life. So take me back to Kit High School, Kit Cobb County, Georgia, Walton High School. Tell me about high school. Kit, explain him to me a little bit. <laughs> you sure? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so people, if they're familiar with the Atlanta area, Cobb County is my home. We share that. And um, I grew up South Cobb and was on my way to Osborne High School. And right before my freshman year, the summer before my freshman year, moved over to the newly constructed Walton High School. And Walton was kind of the it school, right? It was East Cobb was growing and there was, you know, very nice. And, but it was a culture shock for me. And because uh, it's different parts of town. And so I showed up as the guy that really didn't know anybody and didn't necessarily look like everybody else drive what they drove, you know, so it was kind of this new thing. And 
And it wasn't easy to fit in at Walton if you didn't have a way to do that. But sports did that for me. You know, I was the point guard on the basketball team and center forward on the, the soccer team and excelled. And that got me into the right groups pretty quick. And so, you know, got the right girlfriend, had the old jocks that were. But basically what developed for me was I had three lives that were all going at the same time. I had my girlfriend, who was one of the most spiritual girls in the whole school, which I have no idea of what she saw in me. Um, and so I had that whole crowd, Young Life, FCA, you know, doing that whole thing. I had the jocks, you know, which gave me popularity and, and I, you know, hanging with the cool guys and doing all that, knowing all the right people. And that was kind of my reputation. The coaches loved the teachers. I did well in school. But then I had this other crew, which we were just full on. I mean, crazy. So I was the least likely guy to ever become a preacher. Hmm. And because I didn't grow up really, I was raised by a, a wonderful family that taught me, you know, principles and morals and but I was wild. And so the real me, the, the most authentic me at that time was me and my, you know, five or six guys. And we, we went pretty hard and got into a lot of stuff. I was the guy that could talk my way out of anything. And a lot of my, my reputation was the luckiest guy in the world because I'd get in so many, many different scrapes and trouble and potential disasters. And I always skated on through and managed to, to get my way out of it. And uh, until that didn't work anymore. And so that kind of sets the scene for a talented guy that was popular, but had this whole other life that was going to take him on a roller coaster ride. Was, was it hard to juggle all three of those things as a, as a kid? Was it hard to, to, to be a chameleon in and out of those circumstances? I, I, I wish it would have been. Yeah. You know, but I it, I didn't know what I didn't know. So right. I didn't know everybody did this or whatever. But that was something that served me later in life in the work, in the ministry that, I, right. that I've been called into over all these years. But at the time, it obviously did not serve me because I don't think I had a clue really who I was. And so I wanted to be, you know, what you wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. And then I excelled. And so you liked me, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you know, I think there was a lot of insecurity there, you know, where I was trying to find my way. And like I said, the most authentic me, unfortunately, was the wild job, you yeah. know, and, but I moved kind of seamlessly through those different fields. And, and it, I, I could make friends with anybody. And, yeah. and now that is probably one of the greatest gifts I have because of the places where I do my work. So, so you leave Walton, you go to University of Georgia, correct? What, down to Georgia Southern to play soccer first. That's right. Then yeah, then went to UGA. So what changed about what changed about Kit in college? Did you still have those three worlds rolling even while you were in college, or did you lean into one of those worlds more than the others? Well, one got deleted, and it was the spiritual life. <laughs> so, I got <laughs> college and so, so I guess I don't know if that that wasn't a good thing, but I I let go of one of myself. Yeah. So, you know, I still had the athlete thing down at Georgia Southern, but it was a whole different thing when you're on a whole campus and it's a sport that, you know, you know, soccer is not the kind of sport that football, basketball is. Um, No, it was more like I gravitated toward that one guy that was just wild. I was the guy that, you know, wasn't wasn't scared of much and would do just about anything, you know? And so (laughs) that's where I went. But I tell you what was significant um, after my freshman year, I just lost my heart for it. Sports had been my whole life since I was a little boy. 
And, um, and I just, I just decided I, I didn't want to do it anymore. And so I, I didn't quit during the season, but after my freshman year, I gave that up. And so that was the second life that went away wow. and the only one remained. And by the time I got to UGA, that one flourished. And it was the, you know, I went from, I graduated to a, a play. <laughs> UGA will eat you alive if you're not ready for it. And I was ready for it, you know? And so, yeah, I developed, you know, I did what I did there and I, I got high pro profile jobs where I got a lot of people and got kind of known a little bit and, you know, just kind of rode that. And then that's what led me to my big change in life. Cause I got worn out, burnout at 20, three, you know. Yeah, talk to me about that a little bit. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that part of the story when you when you hit because everybody hits a wall of some sort. You yeah. know, talk talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. Mine was a car crash. And you know, I come by it honest. Uh, addiction runs through my family, through the men in my family. Um, my dad, his dad, his dad. And um, now I'm very open about that, you know part of my life because it helps people. And, you know, I've, I've released a lot of shame and just kind of embraced, you know, the, the, the one that God made <laughs> who I wouldn't be introduced to yeah. that part of myself until a few years later. But, but it was, you know, it was becoming unsustainable because my hunger and appetite to get out of right here, right now, you know, the adult child of an alcoholic, we have a lot in common and, um, and you're not comfortable in your own skin. And you always want to get to the next thing. And you always want to keep your mind occupied, you know, because there's just a, you know, there's a gnawing inside of you. And, and then the more you use, you know, the more you need to get to the same place. And that's the crazy ride of addiction. And then, you know, one night I, I crashed a car and, and uh, it wasn't the last time I would do that. And, and it, if, if it happened in today's world, I would have been in serious trouble, big boy trouble. Because back then, they slapped you on the hand. And luckily, nobody was hurt. But it got my attention. Mm. And that was right before my dad died. And so my dad passed when I was in college. And love my dad. You know, I, I miss my dad. Um, but it was, it, it, was a, it was a bad death. And it, it was, you know, from this disease. And so... That one rocked me. And so at a young age, 20, you know, I was, I decided that I didn't want to drink anymore. And I made my first attempt. Um, it didn't last long, but I, I went ahead and admitted to myself that, okay, this is a problem. I'm a lot like my dad, the good, but also, you know, the, the treasury of it. So um, I made an attempt, which planted a seed, but then I went back into that crazy world for a few more years. Wow. When did the when did the spiritual piece really come into play in your life? Because that was part of your turn, wasn't it? That spiritual, what Christ did. Talk to me a little bit about that. It, it was huge, and I wasn't aware of it. it. wasn't I wasn't chasing it. What I was trying to do was change my life. And so now I'm uh, at this point, twenty five, and I make my second big attempt to go ahead and change my life. And those that have, have fought this battle know that it, it ain't easy. I mean, you, it's all in, it's all or nothing. And um, you've got to fully commit um, to recovery, just like you fully committed <laughs> to the addiction mm -hmm. for all those years. And I met a guy. And so I, I had stopped drinking and probably was a couple months in and I decided I was going to get back in shape, you know, cause I had gotten out of shape. So I went and joined the Y and started playing basketball, kind of getting myself together again, got my, my, you know, the athletes start waking up yep. immediately. 
And there was a guy that would be down there playing and everybody else was worldly like me. You know, we're, we're cussing and doing everything that guys do. And there's one dude and, and it was just like there was a light on him. <laughs> you know, he was a good player, but he never cussed. He always remembered my name. He played hard, but he played fair and he encouraged everybody a lot. And I just kept my eye on him. And I thought something different about that guy. And so one day in between a couple of games, I went over and he was at the water fountain and I was there. And I just said, what do you do? <laughs> and he said, uh, I'm a minister. And I said, not like any I've ever met. He was young and cool. And, you know, just like I wanted whatever he had. I stood yeah. up. And he said, I was going to invite you to church today. And I said, where and when? And that Sunday I went to church and I didn't stop for 15 years. Mm. And, you know, within a year I was in the ministry because I started following him around. It'd be like if I met you and, and you were the guy that God used. And I started following Mike Lynch around and seeing all the things that you do quickly. I didn't like what I was doing. I wanted to yeah. do what he was doing. And I was in the music business. So, you know, I went from partying at this level in high school to partying at this level um, in college. And then I went into the entertainment industry and in the rock and roll business. And uh, it was unsustainable. That's when I burned out. And, uh, and I wanted what he had. And so I kept following him and I couldn't study enough. I was devouring the Bible. I would listen. Back then we had cassette tapes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Cassette tapes of preachers. I listened to sermons all when I was on the road. And so less than a year later, I was asked if I wanted to, to be trained in the full-time ministry. And I jumped at it. I mean, looking back on it, it was, I mean, God did what he did. It was perfect. But I was a young guy who was wounded with a lot of talent that got into their system and found out, they found out I could preach. And so I was in the ministry in less than a year from when I was trying to get so wow, wow. You know, that, looking back. And so, you know, the, the ministry ride was wild, but eventually my talent outran my character. Because, mm. <laughs> you know, a lot of the things that I had still in that heart that were wounded were being covered up by the praise of men, you know, because that's intoxicating too. Yep. You put a kid that's kind of hurt on a stage and everybody cheers and laughs at his jokes and, yeah. and lines up to shake his hand. That is another addiction. So really I kind of cross addicted. I gave up the alcohol and the drugs and I fell in love with preaching and it was very authentic and sincere. I mean, it really was. And, but, but it covered up a lot of wounds that were still waiting to be healed. And Kit never does anything halfway. I mean, the one you and I've been friends now for a number of years and uh, from our very first lunch appointment to today, I've learned this about you. You're never half in, you're all in. And so when you went all in on ministry, there were some, there were some rubs with that, wasn't there? That, that came up where I want to say you got burned, but you, you burned, burned, yeah. you know, to a degree. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. That halfway thing. I don't even know what that is. I'm like, yeah. what's that halfway thing you talked about? <laughs> <laughs> well, I tell people, I, I either want to save the world. Or I want to tear up some stuff. I got, yep. I got, they're all both all in. Right. So no, you're right. When I'm 25, I'm unchurched and unschooled and never really read the Bible before. And certainly didn't know much about Jesus. Um, I figured God, you know, liked me a lot. <laughs> you know, I thought, you know, but anyway, when I got in there and started 
learning about him, I was like, why has nobody ever shown me this? Mm-hmm. And I wanted to go tell the world. So I started sharing it with all of my friends. I mean, I was like, my friends crazy like me. They all just kind of left me because they're like, man, he's lost his mind. But I was a blank slate that would be filled. And mm-hmm. so the particular church that I became part of, um, you know, had a certain way of doing things and and um, and what they taught doctrinally. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And absolutely, I latched on, you know, all in and I devoured it. And I learned that system and became very, very good at it. Um, unfortunately, and I'm not blaming anybody, but, you know, my journey is I don't think I really ever understood grace, mm-hmm. but I could preach a great sermon on it. And I didn't really understand the Holy Spirit, but I could dissect and dismantle somebody else's, you know, theology around the Holy Spirit because I knew how to use that Bible. Um, I devoured it. I went through one stretch where I decided I was going to memorize the book of Mark. And I got to where I could start on the first word and recite the book of Mark, you know, and it was like, that's how hard I wanted it. Um, But I got, you know, the years went by and the longer I was doing it, the more that that calling became a career and that, you know, wounded young man became selfishly ambitious. And I started to really desire the next position and, you know, the next job, you know? And so I started out with campus ministry and I did that very well. And, and interestingly, God sent me back to UGA. (laughs) I had torn up that town. He said, go back and fix it. And so he dealt with me in a way there. And then I started leading singles and then churches. And then they gave me other churches to manage. And I was leading, you know, thousands by the time I was, you know, in my early thirties. And, uh, but really a lot of the things and, and the, the mentors I had in my life, God bless them. They loved me. They rescued me. They taught me and almost all of what they taught me was really, really good. But there were some fundamental cracks in my foundation, which, you know, was unsustainable because it was, um, very legalistic and very exclusive. All right. And so I wasn't the guy that was a hypocritical judge, you know, that wanted to go around. I was very nice and sincere, but it was us against the whole world. You yeah. Know what I'm and so yeah. That, that was a problem that would end up becoming a big deal. It, you know, and we, and we use the word roller coaster there at the beginning, that, that high became another low. So you reached another low, and I guess what you probably learn in that world you live in, especially the lowers just get lower. Yeah. And this low was a new low. Yeah. When you hit this new low in this world that you had built around God and the church, and it crashed. Yeah. What was, you had a car crash, but this spiritual crash that happened, what was that like? Yeah. That, that was devastating because mm-hmm. I had finally found the truth. And I knew that I'd found my calling. Never once ever did I ever deny that uh, that my calling was to preach the word. Okay, I knew that. But when everything fell apart, um, it was the perfect storm because we had a church that had grown from 500 to 5,000 in 10 years. And I was there for the whole ride. And I was the guy they raised up. And by the time it was starting to teeter, I was, you know, kind of the, the, the right-hand man of the guy that was leading all the churches in the Southeast. And I was his guy, Right. And so he had lined me up and raised me up. And, and then because so much of it, I believe, was, you know, the theology and the doctrinal things were very man-focused, you know, um, it started to come apart. And so the church that I was a part of began to split 
And the guy that had, you know, really mentored me the whole way, he decided to resign over it. And it's not anything he had done. It's just that it it, it wasn't built on the foundation that would, you know, sustain itself. And <clears throat> so when he got out, it was a perfect excuse for me because I was burnt. I was tired. Yeah. You know, so I burned out at 25. I burned out again at 40. And so at 40, I decided I'm going to get out and make some money. And, you know, it wasn't that easy. You know, I, I thought I was, shoot, I can preach. I can, I'm a people person and all the yep. things they don't translate on a resume, <laughs> you know, so I'm sitting there with some big wig and they said, someone went there looking at it. It's like, all right, well, you've done some preaching. That's good. What else have you done? I'm like, I didn't have an answer for that. And so I found out it was harder than it was, but really, you know, I had been, I didn't realize it when I was going through it, but really I was, I was really starting to get beat up more and more and I was losing the fire inside and very insecure again. So, I mean, after 15 years, instead of being this strong, spiritual, grounded, secure man of God, I had become very insecure about, you know, what's going to happen next. Um, and so when I got out, it was a relief and then it was a storm. I mean, it was a wilderness ride. And, um, yeah, I went through a divorce and a lot of people know me in this town. I've been in and around Atlanta for 56 years and half of it has been a public, you know, gig. And yeah. so, so I was a very good story there and, and there was a lot of shame. And so what I did is I just ran away. Um, you know, I'd created a mess, but then I was very angry about the way that the, the way I perceived it. And again, now I tell the story a lot differently because I, I had a big chip on my shoulder and everybody to blame for a long time. And now I'm like, Hey, I made every decision I've made. Nobody forced me to do anything. And, you know, when I got out, it was devastating because I'm like, man, I just gave God 15 years of the wheelhouse, 25 to 40 is when you're supposed to be building a career and building some you know, wealth and building. And I got out at 40, busted up all by myself. And I went right back to that guy, you know, wow. the, was the sinful nature that I let go of in the waters of the Chattahoochee River on August 19th, 1989, when I was baptized, that joker had been doing push-ups in the parking lot waiting on me to get back. And so I found myself in a world of corporate events and cocktail parties and after hours and happy hours and, and you know, networking events. And it just, it caught me up and it came back, roaring back. And anybody that knows addiction, man, you can put that thing away for years. And if you ever pick it back up, it picks up right where you were. It doesn't, wow. you know, you don't have any time to kind of build up again. And so now I was out there looking at God, like, <laughs> is this how this works? You know, I give you the best years of my life. And then, you know, you take it all away. And so I prayed one of the most real prayers I've ever prayed. And I'm standing on the balcony in my little 800 square foot apartment, drinking every night, stop the pain. And, you know, my kids, seeing my kids on the weekends, worst case scenario for me. And I shook my fist at him and I was so honest with him. You know, I didn't go find another church and start playing a game. I wasn't going to be a hypocrite. And so I just said, I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to hang with you. I'm not going to go see your people. I'm not going to read your books. Matter of fact, this is real, Mike. I said, leave me alone. And I said, if you if you want to be merciful, so be it. If not, <laughs> what do what you got to do. And I went on my run and it was a year. Ooh, it was a dark year, wow. 2004. And <clears throat> so whatever that is, 16 years ago. So um, 
he protected me, but now I see him looking down on me with that little tantrum prayer and saying, all right, let me know how it works out for you. Yeah. Yeah. Come back. And I'm telling you, Mike, this is so true. I mean, I got as high as I could get and he was above me. (laughs) I went to the depths of despair and he was below me. (laughs) I tried to outrun him and escape from him. And he was in front of me and I tried to back off and backslide as far as I go. And he was behind me. And he just, you know, I met the divine stalker is what I, <laughs> what I found is this God that would not let me go. And as much as I tried, he wouldn't. And that is where I really began to understand grace. And about a year later, uh, after being beaten into a state of reasonableness, I looked up at those same stars and I said, if you ever let me preach the word again, which I didn't think was possible. I said, I didn't even know what I was praying. I said, I'll go to the harassed and helpless. You know, and I thought of Matthew 25, sheep and goats. And I said, I'll go to the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the stranger, the sick, and the prisoner, something I'd never really done. You know, people brought people to me. I studied with them. I preached big sermons and I counseled people and trained ministers. But, you know, as far as the least of these, yeah, yeah. And Jesus said, whatever you do for the least of these brothers of mine, you do for me. And I said, I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And then, honestly, I, I forgot about that prayer. I went and started doing motivational speaking. I, I had my last drink in 2005, and I'm not thirsty today and haven't yeah. been for a long time. But so I got out there and I said, well, I ain't trying to go back and preach anymore. I, I told God I wasn't going to preach anymore. That's kind of funny. And so then I, went, I became a motivational speaker, and that woke up this fire inside of me. But I was still hurting so bad that I couldn't preach the word. Yeah. You know, I felt like I was disqualified and because the Bible says certain things about, you know, things, divorce, remarriage, and, yeah. and I married my wife, you know, in 2006 and she was really, she's the angel that God sent to me um, to help me learn to love myself, you know, which was amazing. And you know, her she's a little yeah. bit of dynamite. Don't fight her now. She's a little fighter. But <laughs> so anyway, I came back and I prayed that prayer. And then I went and started doing my thing. And then everything changed in 2008. And 10 years earlier, I'd been leading a big church up in Gwinnett. And one of the beautiful sisters in the church had a son. He was about 12 or 13. And he just would wait in line to come and talk to me. And Mr. Kitt, here's what I learned from your sermon today. You have little kids like that. And it's so beautiful. So I started to big brother him. And, and then I lost him because I went to lead a church in Athens. And, um, and he went the way of the gangs. Beautiful little Latino boy. And, and he got caught up in MS-13 and became somebody in that world. Anybody that knows that word, that name, is it's the worst of the worst. And I lost him. And his mom found me on Facebook and said, will you go see Luis? He's in big trouble. And I told God I wasn't going to study his Bible anymore. And, and I walked into Gwinnett County Jail, and my little buddy, who now was a grown man, covered with tats and eyes that looked like they had died. And I walked in, and he saw me, and that big smile reminded me of that little boy. And I started going to, to visit with him for two years. I went and studied the Bible with him through the glass, and I taught him about God, and he taught me about gangs, and he was baptized on Cinco de Mayo through the glass. And, and it was amazing. I said, Luis, you believe that Jesus is the son of God, and he died for you, buried for you, raised for you, live a new life. And I said, are you willing to die for him? And he said, he said, I've been willing to die for my gang for 10 years. I'm ready to die for him. 
Wow. I saw an officer fill a big pail that he stood in and get a big 20-gallon bucket and pour. We had to get creative because they had never baptized anybody in this facility. That set the scene for the work of my life because I saw an amazing miracle. God changed a man that everybody thought was demon. I mean, he was looking at a death penalty, Mike. And he, he got, I, st- I stood for him and MS-13 had threats on me and I stood for him in federal courthouse and I vouched for him and he got a 20 instead of a 30 and he's going to be out in the next three or four years. It's going to be a great day, but he changed my life, this kid. And so I, it made me see these, what the world calls convicts differently because of him. And I wasn't afraid of them because of him. And that began a whole new world for you. And I, and I love the phrase. I've never heard you use it before, Kit. I'm sure you have, and I just missed it. But you said he his eyes were dead. You know, when you looked into those eyes, do you feel like at some point in that your eyes were there too? That that life behind Kit had had gone away? Did you feel that way too? Yeah. I mean, it was, <laughs> I haven't thought about this in a while, but um, you know, my story is very colorful and I don't, I, I've lost most of my shame around it. If there is some shame left, it's running for a place to hide, but I mean, it's in there, but a lot of yeah. police, but I was in a club in my despair in 2004 and this young lady who I didn't know, and I was in a place I shouldn't have been. She looked at me and said, your eyes are so tired. Mm. I have these bags under my eyes. And when you look at yourself for long enough in the mirror, you see the same guy. I was, I gained all this weight. I was, I mean, I was just in a bad place. And a stranger looked at me and said that. And I was like, my God. Wow. (laughs) It was a moment. And so, yeah, his eyes just kind of looked like shark eyes. But then he saw me, they lit up. That's so good. And and that took you on a journey now that has opened door after door after door, where you, you spent a lot of time in prisons for many years. So I want to, I want to dive in on that a little bit. What did you learn behind bars about those men and those women that you've worked with? You could have never known when you were sitting in the pastor's chair in Athens or Gwinnett or, or down at Cumberland, what did you learn that way getting behind those bars? You couldn't have learned any other way. What'd you learn about them? Wow. They weren't, who they thought, who I thought they would be. And I think anybody that's listening or watching is, you know, we have this idea of what prison is and believe me, it's, it's as bad. It's worse than what you see in the movies. But the men that I, that I met were fathers and brothers and sons and grandfathers, you know, and they, they have families and they had stories. And if you get close enough to them and, and they let you in on their journey, you will see that if I, lived was born where he lived and came on his journey it makes sense that he's a man i would be him if i had his story yeah and it was amazing what god did because you know i've been in 100 prisons and jails and detention centers across the country on four continents and yesterday i got to go in the cobb county jail and i haven't been able to go in any jail or prison for months because of the pandemic and i was able to get my fix yesterday because i need them yeah, I need them. And I tell them, and I told them yesterday, every time I, I get in front of a new group of inmates and I'll, I say, you saved my life. And they say, we don't even know you, bro. And I'm like, nah, you guys, I'm a made man in this fraternity of 2 million men locked up in the land of the free. They taught me loyalty. 
because in there, if you tell somebody you're going to be there and you're not, you've got problems. They taught me integrity because if you give somebody your word in there and you break it, you've got problems, big problems. They taught me respect because if you don't understand respect behind that razor wire, you've got real problems. And these are problems, not like free world. If I, if I disrespect you, Mike, which I hope I never do or have, I might lose a friend. We might not hang out. Or if I tell you I'm going to be somewhere and don't show up, well, maybe you won't have lunch with me next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Consequences are not dire. And there you got real problems. But this is the thing that occurred to me. It was like an epiphany. My three things in ministry that I needed to unlearn and relearn. One, I realized that most of the things I did had an agenda. And it wasn't a bad agenda. I wanted to get to know you. Why? Because I wanted to be your friend. Why? Because I wanted you to come to church with me. Why? Because I wanted to study the Bible with you. Why? Because I wanted you to be saved. Why? So you could be a part of the kingdom. Why? So you could go and help people be saved. Yeah. And then I looked at Jesus and, and saw that he, he did not have an agenda. There were no strings attached to his love. And I needed that. And so on the inside, I, I had to love without agenda. They couldn't come to church with me. They couldn't tithe. You know, they couldn't. Yeah. I, they couldn't call me. They couldn't come and have lunch with me in a free world. It was like I went and saw them and loved them with no agenda. And that changed my ministry. And the fruit that was born with no agenda was powerful. And I, I, I think about the traditional ministry that I was in, if I'd have known that or lived it. The second thing was I loved being on stage in front of the bigger the crowd, the better. You know what I'm saying? And I, I could move them. He gave me a ministry where nobody saw my work. Yep, that's right. The best work of my life in the ministry, and by far the best preaching I've ever done on this planet is in prison because something happens to me in there I can't reproduce anywhere else. There's an authenticity, there's a vulnerability, and there's a power that comes upon me, but nobody gets to see it but them, which is a special bond we have. And the third was the church that I was in, we ran everything. We started it, created it, developed it, funded it, staffed it we didn't work well with others we weren't going to partner with north star yeah. we didn't need to and in there you can't get into a prison without a partner and so i had to go and volunteer sincerely with other prison ministries to ride in with them and serve them faithfully until the prison started asking me to come because they saw something different and so they they changed me and they were also the church that i need and that might sound funny to people a bunch of hated feared forgotten men I needed a place that was safe, and I went into maximum security prisons because it was a safe place for me. I could tell them things that I would never say behind mm -hmm. a pole. Mm -hmm. And the more vulnerable I was with them, the more they loved me. They would laugh at my mistakes. They thought it was crazy funny. And they, they, they taught me grace because they didn't judge me, and they loved me. And I hadn't experienced that in a long time in churches, which, hey, that, all that might be my fault. But I felt very judged, you know, and the phone stopped ringing when I fell, you yeah. know, and we were, where were all my ride or die, you know, ministry buddies, the phone did not ring. And yet here were these, these prisoners that could not wait for me to come and see them. It was true fellowship. So I don't know if that answered your question. I, absolutely. It does. Because it, it not only did, not only did his eyes open, your eyes open too. And, and it sparked a whole new life for you. And I love, you know, sort of the, the, the power of peace that you're known as now, the Power of Peace Project. If people are looking you up, and I know there's links in our show notes, 
you know, all that was born in those in those cells as you began to assemble not only Luis, but other guys from other gangs and you put them in a you put them in a room and you began a you began a peace project. Tell everybody a little bit about that and some of what began to what got you in a hundred jails and prisons. Tell a little mm. bit of that story because it's fascinating. Yeah. Magic happened in the first one and it happened to be the worst prison in the state of Georgia. Everybody, I was in the Cobb County Jail yesterday and I said, it started at Hayes State Prison. When I say Hayes, all eyes go, what? I get automatic respect because it is the worst of the worst. Mm. And that's where I went, but I wasn't afraid because of Luis. I mean, I'd already studied with a guy that, you know, he's my buddy and he's as bad as they come. And so I went in there and started making friends. And the more I did, I realized these brothers want things to be different in here. They just don't believe it's possible for them. And, you know, I believe, I, I tell them, I don't come into here to bring God to you. I come in here to find God in you. <laughs> so I'm just searching for God. And certainly you find what you look for. And so on death row, I, I went in there believing that Jesus said he would be with the least of these. Well, death row inmates are at the bottom of the line, you know, at the back of the line. And so they began to trust me. And then I developed a, a way just to use the principles that I'd learned um, to bring rivals together. It was pretty simple. You get them all in the same room and you can imagine you've got Bloods and Crips and GDs and Latin Kings and Aryan Brotherhood and the militant Muslims and everybody else all in their cliques and gangs, not knowing why they're in there. And then we begin to spend time together and I start to give them hope. And hope's a dangerous thing in there because they're, you know, they've been, their heart's been destroyed and they don't want to hope anymore. And then I began to help them see that you guys are the only ones that can create peace in this place. Nobody else can do it but you. And I'd ask them questions. Raise your hand if you want to do hard time. None of them raise their hand. Raise your hand if you want to go home. Everybody raise their hand. Raise your hand if you want your son to come here. Nobody raise their hand. Raise your hand if you want to do hard time. Nobody raise their hand. And then raise your hand if you think that you could stop most of the violence in here if you were properly motivated. All of them raise their hand. And I'm like, okay, if we get on a plane and fly to Syria right now and get dropped off in the middle of a war zone, I bet you that we're not going to be worried about who's black and who's white and who's Christian and who's Muslim right. and who's blood and who's crip. We're going to get together because we're all wearing white with blue stripe. And then we developed this little peace council and it had all the big players of all the gangs. And I have no, I think God just touched the warden and let me do things that nobody would have let me do. And we're in a small chapel on Fridays. There's no keys in the room, no officers. And I'm with the baddest dudes in the, in the compound. And imagine me sitting around a living room with a bunch of church leaders and I'm doing my little small group or I'm doing my staff training and you're, Bob, what you got? Well, my marriage is suffering a little bit. Well, I'll turn over to Ephesians. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And now fast forward to Hay State Prison. I got my little small group and I'm like, all right, what we got today, fellas? Day, day. And he says, uh, yeah, this week in C1, you know, we had a guy, he was tied up, wrapped in a sheet, set on fire and thrown off the tier. So, I mean, what are we supposed to do about that? And I'm sitting there like, this is above my pay grade. <laughs> and I, was, I was right in the middle of it. You've got an inside voice and an outside voice. Outside voice is, yeah. well, what do you think? Should we not have any burnings this week? You know, and so inside, it was a whole different voice. But we started negotiating. And so I'm like, what do y'all need to do about that? And he's like, we got to do something about that. And I said, well, what would it take for you not to do that? And we would reason together. And it's like, all right, we're going to put it down. But if you let anybody know that we let you off the hook, it's on. And I saw miracles happen. Riots wow. were down, hits were called off. Peace came to Hay State Prison 
for a magical season and they won institution of the year that year in the state of Georgia. And that put me on the map because they went from worst to first. And then I was invited to Michigan to do my program. And then it was Ohio and then it was Kansas and then it was Nebraska and then it was California and then it was Tijuana, you know, so it just developed a life of its own. And I developed a way to bring rivals together, which I think is what my ministry is all about now with everything that's going on. You know, I remember sitting with you when that, when the passion that you have now began to unfold and you're trying to put arms around it of we got to get these kids before they get there. We've got to, we've got to reach these kids during their formative years. And you began to have a passion to get into high schools. And I remember starting with high school football teams and the, you know, you put together pop squads and, and man, you know, you step back out of it. Now you're in the thick of it. You're in the middle of it about to roll out your fall semester. You know, you step back, what have you seen God do, Kit, in these past couple years through high school kids that didn't really even know what they were getting into? What have you watched God do there through these pop squads? It's, it's been the most amazing thing that I couldn't have created. It was unintended consequences that gave birth to new things. And, and I owe you so much, Mike, because I remember we sat down, too. It was, it was an idea. Yeah. And it led to the book that I wrote around this one, which, and then you were the one that vouched for me with five football coaches that gave me a shot when I had no clue what I was doing and, uh, and magic happened. And, and it was interesting because I see God in this whole crazy journey, even all my messes that became my message. And, and it was like, okay, if I, if I choose gang leaders in a prison and change their minds and then I get all their followers who are my gang leaders in the high schools? And I thought athletes, you know, they're the ones that run things. At least it was at Walton. And it seems like it is now they have the most influence. And so I developed a program that was different, but similar to the one in the prison that had worked so well. And we had that think tank member and we started, I mean, that's so cool for me to remember. So and then it gave birth to this program. It's called Protect the Dream. So we get together the influencers in a school. And now we include marching band, performing arts, ROTC, student government cheerleaders. But then it was football. Yeah. It's like we can get the football players, right? And we started helping them dream big dreams. Maybe it was, you know, get a D1 scholarship. You know, it could be whatever you wanted to be, something bigger than themselves. And then once they have something big that, that pulls them, you know, I've got, you take two guys at a party and one of them is, you know, somebody like BJ Ojolari, who's one of the best kids I know. And he's got a huge dream to play at LSU, which he now is. And somebody tries to get him to do something at a party. And then he's got a knucklehead teammate that doesn't have a big dream, but has a lot of talent. BJ says, no. The other kid says, why not? He's got nothing to protect. And so we kind of, that was the thing, a valuable dream is protected. Well, now let's figure out what the threats to that dream are. And so I came up with seven dream killers. Mm. And so, you know, the quarterback and the running back or the point guard or the head cheerleader or whatever has a big dream. And then we started to help them see irresponsible social media can destroy that dream. Drugs and alcohol can wreck that dream. Disrespect of authorities can kill that dream. Scholastic standards falling can take that dream away. Bullying ruin that dream, objectifying females, ruin that dream. I started to help them look 10 years out and say, 
oh, it's funny to call girls this and this and this at 17, but at 27, we call that divorce. Yeah. It's funny to vape and go and, you know, get loaded on the weekends at 17. At 27, we call that rehab. No, it's funny to disrespect authorities like we see on TV right now. Ten years from now, we call that being fired. And so we try to help them see that, man, protect that dream. And it it became very popular, you know, and, and it became this new thing. And, and it was crazy. The hook is, and I love this part, whenever I get in front of the kids, I show pictures of these prisons all over the world with these bona fide gangsters throwing up peace signs and laughing arms around each other. And you can see all these rivals together. That was the coolest thing these kids has ever seen because they're playing grand theft auto and listening to gangster rap and watching purge, you know, the movie. And they saw gangsters becoming peacemakers and they're like, Whoa, we want to be a part of that. Yeah. So there was this crazy thing developed that the men behind the wire, I would challenge them and say, Hey, you're role models. Now don't let those kids down. And then I go back to the kids and say, hey, listen, those brothers are putting their lives on the line for you in there. Do not let them down. And these unlikely role models begin to impact these kids that are good kids that are living at a dangerous time for them. Yep. That is so huge. If, if somebody's listening right now, Kit, and they want more information on that in the community, we've got listeners truly all over the country. What would be the best way for them to get in touch and find out more how to make something like happen, like that happen in their community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Power of Peace Project. Um, you can just Google it. You can Google my name, and it'll go straight to you know the work. Kitcummings.com um, involves more of the work now I'm doing with local government, law enforcement, uh, as well as the prisons and the jails. I have a very interesting position now that both sides of this crazy conflict we see. The left embraced my work because of, you know, prison reform and minorities and youth gangs. The right raised me. They love me to mm-hmm. death. And so I get to work with both sides. But KitCummings.com has more of that on there. Peace Behind the Wire is the book of, of the books I've written, the one that really tells the story. Mm-hmm. And I was blessed to get a couple of awards uh, for that book and endorsed by the King family, which I'm very proud of. And, and uh, But anyway, that that helps people understand it. And Protect the Dream is the other book that would help them if they wanted to really inquire about how can we start this movement in our school because parents are afraid. All of us are, yeah. you know, about the things that threaten our kids. Good kids are getting caught up in things that That's they right. didn't ask for, you know. You know, you you were awarded uh, the NAACP award, the Martin Luther King Living the Dream Award. When you won that, what did it mean to you when – you got word that that is something that you were being honored with. What did that mean to you? Why did it mean so much? Golly, I've been following that beautiful man since I was 25. And I can't, I, I don't know how I got a hold of it, but I read a book called Let the Trumpet Sound. And it so impacted me. I'm from Atlanta, the Mecca of the civil rights movement. And I started following him and I had no idea that he was going to be so important to me. And I connected with his family. I did uh, Peace Behind the Wire was a book that I released. And I did a joint uh, book signing with Bernice King, Dr. Bernice King. And, and, that's, and they carry my book at the King Center. And so we had a connection. And if that's all that it ever was, that had been enough. But the beautiful thing was, is they tricked me. Mm-hmm. I had an event that you were at, at, at our event um, yeah. on 17th January. We're having a big fundraiser for our thing. And... Um, and at that event, 
the head of the the matriarch of the NAACP here in our part of town, uh, Ms. Bonner, she came over to me and said, we need you to speak um, on Monday at our big gala. We have it once a year. I'm telling you, it is a packed thousand people. It's a who's who of everybody and anybody in Cobb County in Atlanta. And uh, we want you to speak. And I said, whoa, I've got an event. I'll try, but I don't know if I can get there on time. And they came back and said, Chief Dennard will give you a police escort if need be, but we need you this thing. <laughs> I'm not kidding. She did that. And so I'm like, dang, they really want me to speak. Well, I get closer and closer to the event and they ain't told me what I'm speaking about, when I'm speaking, how long I'm supposed to speak. And I'm like, what are they thinking? I mean, are they just trusting me to get up there and roll? And so I get there late and I'm, I'm hurrying and I go all the way down. They're way into the program. They got some celebrity on stage doing all these performances. It's a big deal. And so I just let make sure that they know I'm there. And they're like, hey. And then I sit down near the front and I just wait. And I'm looking at the, the my watch like, I don't know when I'm supposed to go backstage. Yeah. And I'm um, confused. And finally, I start feeling a little bit dissed, like they forget about it. <laughs> so, so finally, all of a sudden, Miss um, uh, Doreen, the, the president, uh, Grimes, she got up and, and with uh, another gentleman, and they said, now we're giving our, um, our annual Living the Dream Award. And this next gentleman, and she said, she said, we kind of had to lie to get him here. And I looked and I was like, Oh my gosh. And I still, wow. and they called my name and I went up there and I, for the, one of the first times in my life, I was pretty speechless mm-hmm. because just to be, just to be connected to yeah. him in any way, it, it meant the world to me. Still does. You know, I'll never forget that. I love, I love that kit because I've watched you inspire that dream. You know, you helping students protect their dreams, but you're also, helping people inspire their dreams. I didn't know the kit who didn't understand grace. That's not the kit I know now. I know the kit that gives lots of grace and, and, and lives man with Jesus's hands and his feet going to the least of these off the radar, not seen. Um, could you do what you do now? If you hadn't experienced what you've experienced prior do you think all of those roller coaster rides, highs and lows, made you into this man that you are for this best season of your life? What would you say to that? I say there's not a doubt in my mm-hmm. mind that I needed every bit of that pain to have not just compassion, but empathy for mm-hmm. a lot of these men and the, these kids, because I don't want them to experience, especially the kids. And it was a long time later that I remembered that prayer that I said, if you ever let me preach again, Mm. I'll go to the harassed and helpless. And God did that for me. And in a way that I never could have dreamed, you know, my dad passing away the way he did, it gives me compassion for people who have lost somebody. You know, the addiction that I fought so hard for so long that he finally delivered me from, you know, I feel for the addict, you know, or the, even people are going through a divorce. I feel you, I don't want anybody to to do that. You know, I got hurt when I was a kid by somebody and my heart goes out to, I mean, so many things that were the things I never dreamed, wouldn't have asked for and couldn't have dreamed I could have gotten through. And my story is, there's a lot most of the men I meet on the inside they would love to trade me with their problems for my problem yeah. 
But for me, it gave me a heart that I think would have been arrogant, which I'm still, you know, prideful man. God humbles me in a lot of ways because he loves me. But I would have been a just an arrogant man. Mm. If I'd have made a lot of money, I wouldn't have seen the need to do what I do. And so he has been the perfect architect of this thing, doing his thing. And I'm a knucklehead and I know God loves knuckleheads. And so I'm kind of the champion to the knuckleheads. That's good. <laughs> I wouldn't trade it. Final question, Kit. When, when God created Kit, when he knit you together in your mother's womb, you got a precious mama. When, when he put you together in her womb, what do you think he created you to do? What would you say? Give hope to the hopeless. I think that's it. I mean, they're spiritual gifts. And I, I think mine, I mean, he gave me some leadership. You know, he definitely gave me the, the gift of encouragement. You know, I, I really am able to, you know, give people courage and, and hope. But I think um, I love people. I always have. In some of the craziest situations I was in, my heart would go out to somebody. And I'm in the middle of doing crazy stuff. And for whatever reason, my heart never got hard. And I got angry and disillusioned. But I think he created me to connect with people. Because, you know, if I can connect with a cartel soldier in Tijuana and he becomes my good friend, which I have a friend, <laughs> so yep. I then I don't know. It's, I think it's a gift. And it was that that wounded boy at Walton High School trying to figure out desperately how to make friends with everybody that eventually was going to make friends with the friendless and to give them some hope. And then once they realize that they're lovable, well, now they believe maybe I could love somebody else. You know, and so I, I believe that, whatever that gift's called. <laughs> Thank you, Kit Cummings. Thank you for taking your story and making it a benefit to everyone else's story. It would have been so easy for Kit to reach rock bottom and not know that he could use his story to help other story. And now high school students, middle school students, and leaders in all facets are better because of Kit and how he's used his story. Thank you, Kit Cummings. It's an honor to call you a friend, and I love watching the way you're making a difference in your generation. Man, if you've enjoyed this podcast, I hope you'll push pause. Go to uh, iTunes and leave a review and a rating. It really helps us in climbing the chart. Also, we get another great episode coming up next time. We get to sit down with one genuinely one of my favorite leaders, Bill Purvis. Bill has pastored the great Cascade Hills in Columbus, Georgia for years and years. He's just turned over the reins of the church to his son, Brent, who is crushing it and doing a great job. But Bill, Bill's not stepping away. Bill's taking now and refocusing his energy to be the leader of BP Leadership. He's been teaching leadership for years in the Columbus area, but now he's doing it for his full-time trade. And I'm telling you, he nails leadership. And you are going to love our time with Bill Purvis. Thanks so much for joining me today. And I pray that you go be the leader you were created to be in the space and the place God has put you. 
Thank you for listening to the Lynch with a Leader podcast with your host, Mike Lynch. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help more people hear it by subscribing and leaving a review wherever you may be listening. For full episode notes and more spiritual leadership resources, visit MikeLynch.com.